Good afternoon, y'all. Looks like everything's working, which is good. Um, we will be this morning in uh, Isaiah 6. What an amazing place to be. We get to extol the virtues of our God, the wonder of who He is, and uh, join with our, uh, our brother Isaiah in his wonder and his awe. He is, after all, our awesome God. And uh, in spite of all the things that sometimes um, goes against what we think should be, when people do what they ought not do instead of what they ought to do, there's these times where we're uh, drawn back into, the, into Scripture and we can spend some time just being in awe of who God is. And, um, and He's worthy. So we will be in uh, um, Isaiah chapter six. Um, we'll probably go through the first uh, four chapter or four first uh, four verses. There's a lot of stuff to cover here, and uh, you know, praise God for that. So uh, um, rather than going into any uh, current events, which there's plenty of, a lot of disappointments, so on and so forth, and uh, regardless of all that. Let's uh, let's spend time in an uh, awesome wonder of who God is. Let's read um, um, through verse five, and then we'll go into a time of prayer. Um, here's how it reads, and what uh, Isaiah has recorded for us, and it reads as following: In the year of King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted with the train of his robe filling the temple. Seraphim stood above him, each having six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. Quite an amazing creature. And one called out to the other and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds trembled at the voice of him who called out while the temple was filling with smoke. Then I said, woe is me, for I am ruined, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I live amongst a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the king the Lord of hosts. Father, what an amazing picture that this is that you allow us to, to imagine in the, the recesses of our minds. I thank you that you've given us the ability to imagine such things, or imaginations that can almost see this when we really are focused on the wonder of who you truly are, the awe that you inspire as we think about our God, the one who called all things into existence simply by speaking them, and they were, and they are, and they're held together. The glorious King that you are, and with our brother Isaiah, Lord, we thank you that you revealed yourself. You didn't have to, but you did. And so we thank you for all these things and more. Lord, we pray that you would open our eyes, ears, minds, and hearts to these great truths as we delve into this scene, this heavenly scene that Isaiah was privileged to see. 
And indeed, what an awesome privilege it was. I thank you, Lord, for that response that he had, which was right. It was orthodox. It was correct. It was fearful. Gazing upon the holy, holy, holy God that is our creator. Thank you, Lord, for all these things. Open up these things to our minds and eyes and ears and hearts. For your name's sake and for your glory's sake, we ask it. And for those who might be watching and listening online. We praise you, we thank you, we bless you in Jesus' holy name. Amen. So the death of Uzziah. Uzziah, um, as we go into here, there's a little bit of history that, that I think is important. Because when we see the, the death of Uzziah, he's also, by the way, known as Azariah. Um, one of the things that First um, uh, and Second Kings and First and Second Chronicles, they're almost identical stories. Sometimes there's slight differences in the detail. But Uzziah was also known as Azariah. So when you read there and don't get confused, it can get confusing because they both use different names, not for just this king, but for other kings and other people. And so you go back and forth and you kind of can get lost if you're not paying attention. So King Uzziah is uh, an important figure. Um, he was actually a, uh, uh, he was a son of Amaziah. Or as I kind of nickname him, Amaziah. I think that sounds kind of cooler. <laughs> but Amaziah was his father. He was a king of Judah uh, during the reign of, of Jehoash, king of Israel. Now, if you remember, there's, there's two camps now. You have the northern and the southern you have the two the people, the one people that are split up into two different factions, if you will. And King Amaziah or Amaziah was killed by his contemporaries after he was after he was defeated by Jehoash, the king of Israel, for daring to challenge the king of Israel. And after his victory over Edom and capturing Selah in the Valley of the Salt, killing ten thousand men in war. And he also captured the idols of their gods and took them back to Judah and set them up as his own gods and bowed down to them. Thus angering Yahweh. That was dealt with immediately. And we're going to see that as part of this history. He then in his pride, he and disregard for the warning of God through a prophet, he challenged not only Jehoash, king of Israel, but we're going to see uh, part of what happened to him was he'd gotten so proud because of everything that happened that he dared to act as a priest after being told, don't do this. But that's what sometimes we can get lost in our accomplishments and things. And uh, when we challenge God in that way, it doesn't work out well. It never does. <laughs> it never has. And it never will. So, as we look at this, now Isaiah, otherwise known as Azariah in 2 Kings 14, 21 and 22 and, and uh, uh, 15, 1 through 7. I put that in your bulletins and I would recommend instead of just reading those sections, you might want to just read the whole chapters to get a good idea of the backdrop of, of the things that were going on. Because remember, we've, we've been in all this time of judgment. Well, that's still going on. But here we have a little respite where we get to step back and, and get a glimpse of, of God in His, in his awesomeness and His amazing uh, existence as He is. 
And so, again, the son of uh, Amaziah was a king of Judah. Now, Uzziah did what was right in the sight of the Lord, for the most part, according to his father, Amaziah. But Amaziah had his faults. And the reason I'm bringing this up and why I thought it was important to share is because you've heard the sayings, I'm sure, we, we all, we've all heard them, like father, like son, or a chip off. The old block. Or the apple doesn't fall far from the tree. Those are the types of things that we see here. And it was the same thing that kind of happened in the history of these two men. The father and the son, both kings. Um, Uzziah did do what was right in the sight of the Lord when he became king. um, Just like his father, but they had their faults. This is the king being spoken of by Isaiah and was known by Isaiah's contemporary, the prophet Zechariah. Zechariah was around at the time. I don't know whether they knew each other or not, but they were contemporaries, Isaiah and and Zechariah. And Zechariah actually came and spoke to him as he was one of those prophets that uh, had audience with the king. Um, So you've heard those things where uh, we see uh, what the father does oftentimes the son will be guilty of, and he'll follow along the same thing. And it's like I tell people when I'm uh, um, talking to them that are really struggling because of certain things in their family's life. And like we used to do at the Provo Canyon School, every once in a while we would tell them, look, we don't know what brought you, what circumstances brought you to this place. A place where you young men should be home with your families, and your families are all messed up. Um, There's all kinds of things that have happened to you, all kinds of things that you're guilty of. We don't know what they are. But here's what we can tell you. Whatever your family is guilty of, you don't have to be guilty of it. You don't have to follow in that. Just because that's what always been doesn't mean that that's always what has to be. You can make a choice, and you have a choice in the matter. I can't tell you how many times I've heard stories of, of people who find themselves in in circumstances like that and families that have just gone off the rails and they stay off the rails. And the people growing up say, well, this is all I knew. This is all I thought was normal. And we tell them that because they don't have to make those choices. But here we see Uzziah, he did make some of the choices. Um, So... I want to read, uh, um, Uzziah was like his father in some ways and probably better in many ways, but he eventually went the way of all flesh. He fell into sin, namely pride. And really it was uh, those three main things that always seem to get us that are spoken of in the New Testament. The lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, the boastful pride of life. Everything really just kind of funnels down to those three things when we think about them. And that's what took place here. He went the way of all flesh, fell into sin. The cost was suffering. And it was deadly. I want to read from uh, uh, Second Chronicles 26. Um, so we can get a good idea of what was going on here. When, when Isaiah mentioned that it was the death of, of King Uzziah. Um, the death of a king is a pretty big thing. Um, 
I mean, uh, if you guys remember, I'm sure you all, most of you remember the, the death of Princess Diana, and she was just a princess, and how that went on for days, it seemed like. And when they get married over there, even though they have really nothing to do with us internally, how it just captivates people. So the death of a king is, is kind of a big deal. And Uzziah being the king under uh, uh, the uh, prophet, prophetic voice of, of Isaiah, Zechariah, it's important for us to, uh, to understand these things. So, in Second Chronicles, you guys are probably there already while I'm jabbering away. In Second Chronicles 26, this is the story. Um, and this is how it goes down, um, starting in verse 1. And all the people of Judah took Uzziah, who was 16 years old. Now, um, part of what happened here was um, Amaziah, Amaziah, if you will, he, was, uh, he had been defeated by Joash because he challenged. He went out and he, he won this war against, um, against Edom. And he captured one of their cities. And being filled with pride after that victory, he challenged Joash, king of Israel, the northern tribes. And Joash said, hey, look, you won a war. That's great. We're happy for you. We're rejoicing with you. Stop this nonsense. Don't do this thing. Well, Amaziah didn't listen. The result was, um, I'm going to just jump up here to uh, verse 25 through 28 real quick and read this section before uh, chapter 26. And Amaziah, the son of Joash, king of Judah, lived for 15 years after the death of Joash, son of Jehoaz, um, king of Israel. Now the rest of the acts of Amaziah, from the first to the last, behold, are they not written in the book of the kings? And from that time that Amaziah turned away from the following the Lord, they conspired against him in Jerusalem. And he fled to Lachish. But they sent after him to Lachish and killed him there. So they assassinated the king. They brought him on horses and buried him with his fathers in the city of Judah. So he had <clears throat> gone far astray from what he was supposed to do, and that his own people took it upon themselves to take him out. And that's where we pick up here in uh, uh, verse 1 of chapter 26. And all the people of Judah took Uzziah, who was 16 years old, and made him king in the place of his father, Amaziah, or Amaziah. Um, I mean, think about it, 16-year-old boy, young man, and they were much more mature then. They didn't spend... They didn't have the, um, let's just say, the obstacle that we have in our society that started back in the uh, late 40s, early 50s, this whole idea of teenage, teenage is a, is a, teenageism. It never used to be like that. If that's all that we've ever known, it's because we've never done any history and studied it. I have, and it's, it's strange. That's when some of these things, uh, there was a big movement, rock and roll had come in, Drugs, sex, and rock and roll became popular. And it was geared to attract young people. And young people were drawn to it. And there was a big divide. And then there was this movement from secular uh, places in our country that wanted to draw people that were teenagers. A new term that had come in. And 
they wanted to draw and set this group aside so they could influence them. They didn't have that issue back in these days. They were trained from early on to be men. And so here in verse 2, he says, And he built Eloth and restored it to Judah after the king slept with his fathers. Uzziah was 16 years old when he became king, and he reigned 52 years. So he was a significant guy. He was there a long time. In Jerusalem, and his mother's name was uh, Jechaliah of Jerusalem. And he did right in the sight of the Lord according to all that his father Amaziah had done. And that's important. The reason why I'm bringing this up is because it's essentially saying that what I was saying. A chip off the old block. He followed in the same types of... You notice it, it would have been better if it would have said he did right in the sight of the Lord and stopped there. But they add according to all that his father had done. And it says that he continued to seek God, which was good, in the days of Zechariah. There's that prophet, a contemporary of Isaiah, who had understanding through the vision of God. And as long as he sought the Lord, God prospered him. As long as he sought the Lord, God prospered him. Well, what happened? Well, let's keep reading. It says, Now he went outward, uh, he went out and warred against the Philistines, broke down the wall at Gath, and the wall of, of Jabneh, and the wall of Ashdod, and he built cities in the area of Ashdod and among the Philistines. And God helped him against the Philistines and against the Arabians who lived in Gurbaal and the Munites. And the Ammonites also gave tribute to Uzziah, and his fame extended to the border of Egypt, and he became very strong. There's a danger when men become very powerful. And we can all fall into that trap. And so he's become very strong all the way, his fame's all the way to Egypt, to the border there. Verse 9, Moreover, Uzziah built towers in Jerusalem, and the corner gate, and at the valley gate, and at the corner buttress and fortified them. He built towers in the wilderness and he hewed many cisterns for he had much livestock both in the lowland and in the plain. He also had plowmen and vine dressers and in the hill country in the fertile fields for he loved the soil. He was a farmer. He was a gardener. He loved to work, work the soil. By the way, the reason does, it's significant that he built the towers in the chapter before all those had been broken down by Joash, Jehoash, by the king of Israel, the northern tribe. When he defeated Amaziah, he tore all those things down. Uzziah built them, rebuilt them, and he built not only those, he built other ones in addition to those. So he's, uh, he's a pretty productive guy. And this is moreover in verse 11, Uzziah had an army ready for battle which entered combat by divisions, according to the number of their um, muster, prepared by Jeiel, the scribe, and Maasiah, of the official, under the direction of Hananiah, one of the king's officers. And the total number of the heads of households of valiant warriors was 2,600. And under their direction was an elite army. Now listen, the entire army, was elite. These are specially trained guys. They're not just regular infantry. 
Yeah, these are these are these are uh, the frogs and the and the uh, all those the seals and all these other uh, the green berets, all these special forces. That's what it sounds like they were. They were elite army of three hundred and seven thousand five hundred who could wage war with great power to help the king against the enemy. That's a big army today's numbers. That's not a small, insignificant little army. And the fact that they were elite, that's even more impressive. So he was a pretty powerful and, and uh, influential king. He says in verse 14, Moreover, Uzziah prepared for all the army shields, spears, helmets, body armor, and bows, and slings, and sling stones. And in Jerusalem he made engines of war, invented by skillful men to be on the towers and on the corners for the purpose of shooting arrows and great stones. Hence his fame spread far, for he was marvelously helped until he was strong. Yeah, until he was strong. There's a danger in that. Now, I want you to remember something. Remember all the judgments that we've been talking about and how God was calling this, this he's going to call this, this invading army that's ready for war. Sounds like they had some people that were ready for war. But something had happened. Because remember, in all those uh, stories that we read in Exodus and in uh, uh, Numbers and those places where, and in Deuteronomy where we read that God, excuse me, would confuse the enemy. So something would, the supernatural would take place. Sounds like the same type of things because these guys weren't just a bunch of um, farmers that didn't know how to fight. These were elite trained guys. And yet God was still going to call in this army at a different time. So remember that in the back of your mind. In uh, verse 16, now here's where things turn very sour. Remember, he was helped he was marvelously helped until he was strong. Verse 16, here's his downfall. But when he became strong, his heart was so proud that he acted corruptly. And he was unfaithful to the Lord his God, for he entered the temple of the Lord to burn incense on the altar of incense. That is defiling the holiness of God. That is utter blasphemy. God had prescribed how they were to worship. The king was not allowed to do this. It was not his place. Only the priests of the line of Aaron could do this. You see the problem, the pride, the arrogance? This is what had happened to him. He was puffed up. He was puffed up dirt. And God was going to deal with him. Verse 17, Then Azariah the priest entered after him, and with him eighty priests of the Lord, valiant men. And they opposed Uzziah the king and said to him, By the way, when you oppose a king, what uh, generally happens? Yeah, I heard the sound. Off with their head. Usually you don't confront the king. And when you do, it's generally not going to work out well for you. So there was 80 of them. They had backup. 
I'm not going to go tell the king. And maybe it might have been where Azariah, he wasn't going to have any of it. The Spirit of God was burning in him. I don't know. It says, they opposed Uzziah the king and said to him, It is not for you, Uzziah, to burn incense to the Lord, but for the priests and the sons of Aaron who are consecrated to burn incense. Get out of the sanctuary, for you have been unfaithful and will have no honor from the Lord God. That's pretty direct. I think the, the I think, I think there was two fears. There's the fear of the king, and that's one thing. And there's the proper fear of the Lord. And they were operating under that fear. And they cared enough about his king to say, stop. This is, this is blasphemy. You can't do this. Knock it off. Get out. Get out. But Uzziah, with a censer in his hand for burning incense, was enraged. He's enraged. And while he was enraged with the priests, the leprosy broke out on his forehead before the priests in the house of the Lord beside the altar of the incense. God acted. Boom. Instantaneous. was an instantaneous death, but it was a judgment. It was quick. God didn't play around with this. He wasn't going to let him get away with this. The leprosy broke out on his forehead before the priests in the house of the Lord beside the altar of incense in verse 20. And Azariah, the chief priest, and all the priests looked at him. Behold, he was leprous on his forehead. And as I said in the book of Mark, when we were going through the book of Mark, that we talked about leprosy. Leprosy is that almost that uh, signifying of sin and the, the effects that it has. And leprosy will just eat at your flesh. Kill the nerves so you don't feel anything. And your flesh will begin to rot. You won't even know it. Except for the smell. That's kind of what sin does. It makes you numb to the fact that your parts of you are dying. And that's the idea here. Um, this was the judgment of God and it was immediate. They looked at him, and behold, he was leprous on his forehead, and they hurried him out of there. And he himself also hastened to get out, because the Lord had smitten him. He's like, I messed up royally, pun intended. I made a huge kingly mistake here. This is sin. And then it says, uh, he got out because the Lord had smitten him, and King Uzziah was a leper to the days of his death. And he lived in a separate house being a leper. Remember, that was part of the deal. He couldn't go, when he went out in public, imagine the king. And he had to yell, unclean. I'm unclean. Stay away from me. The indignity and all those things that came, the, uh, all of the stuff that, that happened. Because God wouldn't allow it. And like I said last week, it's not just a God who is angry and who is wrathful and who just moves just because. Because He's a God who loves. He won't let you get away with it. And I love that. Scary, but I love that. God is that kind of a God. 
So he was a, a leper until the days of his death, and he lived in a separate house being a leper, for he was cut off from the house of the Lord. And that was the biggest thing. He had to stay out. He could no longer go and be a part of the congregation. Imagine that. Being cut off from that type of worship that God has prescribed. From the house of the Lord and, and Jotham, his son, was over the king's house judging the people of the land. Now, the rest of the acts of Uzziah, first to last, the prophet Isaiah, son of Amoz, has written. So Uzziah slept with his fathers, and they buried him with his fathers in the field of the grave which belonged to the kings. So he wasn't buried in the grave of the kings. He was buried in a field of the kings. Even in death, he was held separate. Because it says he's a, he's a, he was buried uh, in the field of the grave which belonged to the kings, for they said, he's a leper. And Jotham, his son, became king in his place. So that's the backdrop. As Amaziah had done, proudly um, boasted and arrogant in his motions and everything that he did and his decisions, so Uzziah fell into the same trap. Become powerful, they have something amazing that happens, and then all of a sudden, pride kicks in. That's the enemy. That's how he works within us. Um, and so here, back in uh, Isaiah chapter 6, Isaiah says, in the year of the king's death, so this leper, this leprous king is dead now. He says, in that same year, I saw the Lord. Now here's what's interesting here. I saw the Lord. The word there is Adonai. It is not the word Yahweh. And Yahweh, Adonai, is, means my Lord or uh, of, of God or, or or uh, it also means a title spoken in the place of Yahweh in Jewish display of reverence. What the prophet here saw is revealed to us that we, uh, mixing faith with that revelation, may in it, as in a glass, behold the glory of the Lord. Adonai. Let us turn aside, therefore, and see this great sight with humble reverence. This is from Matthew Henry's commentary. He says, um, number one, he says, see God upon his throne. He's speaking to, he's, uh, um, this is what we should be thinking as we're going that. Use our imagination. Imagine seeing this. Imagine being in that place where God gives you this, this vision. He says, see God upon his throne. And that throne high and lifted up. Not only above other thrones, as it transcends them. But over other thrones as it rules and commands them. So it's not just a throne that's seated high. That's the seat of power that commands all other thrones. And then he says, Isaiah saw not Yahweh, the essence of God. For no man has seen that or can see it. And live, those are the words of Jesus. But Adonai, his dominion, he saw the Lord Jesus 
So this vision is explained in John chapter 12, and we'll read that uh, in a little bit. That Isaiah now saw Christ's glory and spoke of him, which is the incontestable proof of the divinity of our Savior. He it is who then, who when after his resurrection, he sat down at the right hand of God, but did sit down where he was before. It wasn't a new throne, it was his own throne. See the rest of the eternal mind. Isaiah saw the Lord sitting. So Isaiah gets this vision. And he sees Adonai seated on his throne. What an amazing thing. What a privilege. I mean, imagine that if God allowed. There's only a few people that are spoken of in Scripture. And we're going to go over that more next week. Um, but just imagine that privilege of God opening up your mind in your mind's eye to see this vision, to actually get a picture of what's going on in the heavenlies. Um, so you have, uh, uh, he sees the throne, he sees the Lord sitting on the throne, it's lofty and exalted, and then the train of his robe filling the temple. The, the word there for robe, it's shul. Not like uh, the, the character with the big head. No, he's trying to go to shul. But it's actually, it's a skirt or a robe or a skirt of a robe. It's a high priest's robe. It's God's train, that robe that begins to feel the temple. Almost like a smoke-like type thing where you see this fabric filling this entire temple. This amazing picture of Adonai sitting on the throne, lofty and exalted, in the train of his robe filling the temple. In verse 2, he says, A seraphim stood above him, each having six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. Now, seraphim, they're, they're, uh, um, it's from the, uh, from the singular word um, seraph. When you add the I am in the Hebrew, that's plural, because there was more than one. And seraph is the word that is used here, and it's, it literally means serpent or fiery serpent. Poisonous serpent, fiery from burning effect of poison. Or seraph, the seraphim, the majestic beings with six wings. Human hands or voices in attendance upon God. So they're in the presence of God. Notice the wings that he has. They have these wings and with two of them they cover their eyes. Cover their face as if to say that as lofty and amazing and as powerful and as wonderful as his beings are that are being spoken of. They pay homage to God. And his holiness and his righteousness. And his perfection and his utter light is such that they dare not look upon it with their bare eyes. Cover their face. And while they're covering their, their faces, they're crying out one to another. And we'll read that in a minute. So this uh, word, seraphim, is uh, a Hebrew word probably meaning burning ones. So they probably had a glory about them. Remember in those uh, um, 
those Christophanies in, in, uh, in the Old Testament. And even the transfiguration on the mountain where Jesus just began to shine with such a great light that they had to cover their eyes. They couldn't look directly at him. This is the idea that's being there. And these, these beings are reflecting the very light, God himself. Um, the fiery ones, it means burning ones. The, the fiery serpents or the uh, representations of angelic creatures with six wings um, which have been discovered in the Near East by archaeologists. So people actually made little statues representing these as best they could. They covered their face. Uh, the seraphim have no glory to compare with God's, and they cannot look upon Him directly. God, or uh, excuse me, they covered their feet. This may be an indication of modesty. Not sure what it means entirely. They flew. So these wings weren't just, uh, they, they were just like a bird's. If you watch a bird, they, they can move things independently, just like we can our appendages. They can move their fingers, and when you're moving your hand, you can do all these different movements. Um, same type of idea. They have this ability to do that, and they actually fly. That would be cool to have wings to fly. Um, but we're not, we're not angelic beings. We're not angels, and we never will be. They're creatures that God made, um, and they're subservient to Him. They're His servants. And then it says in verse 3, and one called out to the other. And the calling out is the, uh, is the Hebrew word kara, kara. And it literally means to call out or to recite, to proclaim, to cry out, to cry out with an uh, utter a loud sound. And they're calling to one another. As if in awe. Holy. Kadosh is the, is the Hebrew word. Kadosh. 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 Holy. 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 Is the Lord of hosts. And again remember the Lord of hosts is that idea. With that military. The Lord of armies. He's this powerful, powerful Lord. And here where he says, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts, you'll see that it's Yahweh. Before it was Adonai. Now it's Yahweh. Representative of our Lord Jesus Christ. He is holy. He's unlike any other thing. And these beings know it. Imagine being in that presence. And this is what they're called to do for all eternity. And it never gets old. That's how awesome and amazing that he is. So he's holy. He's kadosh. Kadosh. They call out one to another. Um, and uh, the word kadosh is simply just sacred. Holy. A holy one. A saint. Someone that is set, up, set apart. It's an adjective. And an adjective is descriptive of something. And when they're expressing this to this subject, this person, that's the way you describe him. 
He's holy. But He's not just holy. He's holy, holy. And He's not just holy, holy. He's holy, holy, holy. He's utterly holy. Incomprehensibly so. We can't fathom His holiness. And I think that's where most people really um, fail in trying to, when we're talking about the things that God holds dear to Him, and above all things is His holiness. His Word, because He's holy. And this is the, the, this is the best descriptive word of who our God is. And so, he is, uh, He's holy and... The threefold uh, repetition is the strongest sort of superlative. Nothing is as holy as God. No one, no thing. God, when He saves and redeems a person, He imputes Christ's righteousness to him. But knowing no one is as holy as God. He's perfectly holy. We're holy because... God has imputed Christ's righteousness to us. That which was foreign and alien to us. He has granted that to us. And therefore we are called holy. Hagios in the Greek. Set apart. The saints. The ones who are set apart from, from all the other things. So we moved from Adonai to Lord Yahweh. And they cried out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts and the whole earth is full of his glory. That is important. Because we see when we look around, um, as it says in, uh, as Paul um, speaks about in Romans 1, that the creation, the creation, you can look at the creation and you can see God's handiwork in all of it. But only for those who are his. That's why everybody will be accountable. There's no way that you can come to any other conclusion if you're logical and rational. And the whole earth is filled with His glory, not just one part of it, everything about it. Oftentimes, we see sunsets or sunrises or we, we see uh, um, sublime waterfalls or water scenes that we, we're just captivated by. And we're just, man, in that moment, we're, or even in a, an amazing thunderstorm where this lightning is just going all over the place and we're captured in the awe and the power of who God is. All the earth is full of His glory. I want to spend most of the rest of the time here in verse 4. Um, and the foundations of the thresholds trembled at the voice of Him who called out while the temple was filling with smoke. That's an awesome thing. There are many places where we're told about this awesomeness of God. And I want to turn to some of those places. Uh, I want to start with Exodus, where we first encounter this, this idea. In Exodus 19, to the left. It's to the left. In Exodus 19, you guys remember, uh, we went through this some of this when we were in, the, in the, uh, Deuteronomy. In Exodus 19, you have this scene Moses is there with the people. They're being, they've gone through the wilderness. They're at this mount. And in Exodus 19, 16 through 25, this is how it reads. 
It says, so it came about on the third day when it was morning that there was thunder and lightning flashes and a thick cloud upon the mountain and a very loud trumpet sound so that all the people who were in the camp trembled. And Moses brought the people out of camp to meet God and they stood at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was all in smoke because the Lord descended. And here you have the word Yahweh, the same person that we're reading about in this heavenly scene. Because Yahweh descended upon it in fire, and its smoke ascended like the smoke of a furnace, and the whole mountain quaked violently. That's the awesomeness of God. Just His very presence causes these things to be. This mountain just quakes in the presence of the king. And when the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke and God answered with a thunder. And the Lord, Yahweh, came down on the Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain. And the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain. And Moses went up. And the Lord spoke to Moses, Go down, warn the people, lest they break through to the Lord to gaze, and many of them perish. And also let the priests who come near to the Lord consecrate themselves, lest the Lord break out against them. And Moses said to the Lord, The people cannot come up to, the mountain, or to Mount Sinai, for thou didst warn us, saying, Set bounds about the mountain and consecrate it. Then the Lord said to him, Go down. And come up again, you and Aaron, with you. But do not let the priests and the people break through to come up to the Lord, lest he break forth upon them. So Moses went down to the people and told them, Holy, holy, holy. He's awesome in his presence. In Psalm, in Psalm 50, the Psalm of Asaph, in the book of Psalms, chapter 50, I want to read this. And this is how it reads, starting in verse 1. It says, The Mighty One, God, Elohim, Yahweh, has spoken and summoned the earth. From, rising, from the rising of the sun to its setting. Out of Zion, the perfections of beauty, God has shone forth. May our God come and not keep silence. Fire devours before Him, and it is very tempestuous around Him. He summons the heavens above and the earth to judge His people. Gather my godly ones to me. Those who have made a covenant with me by sacrifice. And the heavens declare his righteousness, for God himself is judge. Pretty powerful. Gather to me. He doesn't keep himself distant from his people. In Micah, Micah chapter 1, a little bit to the right, a little bit to the right. In Micah chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. This is how it reads here. It says, The word of the Lord came to Micah of Moresheth in the days of Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, 
which he saw concerning Samaria and Jerusalem. Hear, O peoples, all of you. Listen, O earth, and all it contains. And let the Lord God be a witness against you. The Lord from his holy temple. For behold, the Lord is coming forth from his place. He will come down and tread on the high places of the earth. The mountains will melt under him. And the valleys will be split like wax before the fire. Like water poured out on a steep place. Imagine that. He's awesome in all that he is and all that he does. In Nahum, the very next book, same type of thing. In Nahum 1 through 8, the oracle of Nineveh, the book of a vision of Nahum, the Elkoshite, a jealous and avenging God is the, is the Lord. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries. He reserves wrath for his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger, praise God, and great in power. The Lord will be by no means leave the guilty unpunished. In whirlwind and storm is his way, and clouds are the dust beneath his feet. He rebukes the sea and makes it dry. He dries up all the rivers. Bashan and Carmel wither. The blossoms of Lebanon wither. Mountains quake because of him and the hills dissolve. Indeed, the earth is upheaved by his presence. The world and all the inhabitants in it. Who can stand before his indignation? Who can endure the burning of his anger? His wrath is poured out like fire and the rocks are broken up. By him, Yahweh is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble. And he knows those who take refuge in him, praise God. But with an overflowing flood, he will make a complete end of its sight and will pursue his enemies into darkness. He's awesome, amazing, glorious. In Habakkuk, Chapter 3, the very next book. And Habakkuk chapter 3. This will take a little bit of time. A prayer of Habakkuk the prophet, according to Shigionoth. Lord, I have heard the report about thee and I fear. That's the right response. I've heard the report of you and I fear. O oh Lord, revive thy work in the midst of the years. In the midst of the years, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. That's how well they knew him. In wrath, remember your mercy. Don't forget that. Pour out your wrath, yes. Remember your mercy. Verse 3, God comes from Timon and the Holy One from Mount Paran. Selah. His splendor covers the heavens, and the earth is full of His praise. His radiance is like the sunlight. He has rays flashing from His hands, and there is the hiding of His power. Before Him goes pestilence, and plague comes after Him. He stood and surveyed the earth. He looked and startled the nations. Yes, the perpetual mountains were shattered. The ancient hills collapsed. His ways are everlasting. I saw the tents of Kushan under distress. And the tent curtains of the land of Midian were trembling. 
Did the Lord rage against the rivers? Or was thine anger against the rivers? Or was thy wrath against the sea? Thou didst ride them, ride on thy horses, on thy chariots of salvation. Thy bow was made bare. The rods of chastisement were sworn. Selah. Thou didst cleave the earth with rivers. The mountains saw thee and quaked. The downpour of water swept by. The deep uttered forth its voice. It lifted high its hands. Sun and moon stood in their places. They went away for the light, at the light of thine arrows, at the radiance of thy gleaming spear. In indignation thou didst march thou through the earth, excuse me, in anger thou didst trample the nation. Thou didst go forth for the salvation of thy people, for the salvation of thine anointed. Thou didst strike the head of the house of the evil to lay him open from thigh to neck. Selah. Thou didst pierce with his own spears the head of his throngs. They swarmed in the to, in to scatter us. Their exultation was like those who devour the oppressed in secret. Thou didst tread on the sea with thy horses on the surge of many waters. God is the judge of the nations. He's awesome in power, glorious in all his ways. This is the God who's being pictured here. We've got a few other places next week where we'll cover which have similar types of visions. And in each case, it's always awesome. It's amazing. And this is what we find, that God is judge. And as I have been preaching for the last two weeks, a distinction of judgment. Keep that in mind. There's a judgment to those who were redeemed, and the judgment was bore there on the cross of Christ. And our judgment is forgiven. Hallelujah. But the judgment of the pagan, of the non-believer, of the rebellious one, that judgment is condemnation, eternal suffering, and it will never end. It's eternal suffering and punishment is the judgment and the condemnation. And here's the wonder of it all. It's good. That judgment is good. It's right. I'm going to go even a step further. The God that we know, the awesome God that we understand, who we find in Scripture. If God would never have saved anyone, it wouldn't change who He is. He would still remain the same. Good, perfect, holy, holy, holy. It wouldn't change who He is. Praise God that wasn't His plan. Praise God that's not what he called to be. Praise God that he sent his son to take our sin, to be our sin bearer. Because he could carry it, being the eternal God the Son who could carry our infirmities. This is the God who is awesome in all his ways. And I want to read this 
from Isaiah, what we're reading, the reason why I can confidently say with Matthew Henry that this proves enthusiastically that this is what Isaiah saw. In John chapter 12, if you will turn with me very quickly. John chapter 12. Verses 30 through 43. And it simply reads as this. John chapter 12, verse 30. I got to get on the right page. And Jesus answered and said to them, This voice has not come for my sake, but for your sakes. This is where Jesus is teaching. And he had previously spoken and said, Father, glorify thy name in verse 28. There came therefore a voice out of heaven. I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. So Jesus now in verse 30 says, And this voice has not come for my sake, but for your sakes. Now judgment is upon this world. Now the ruler of this world shall be cast out. And I, if I be lifted up from the earth and draw all men to myself, you get that with the picture that Isaiah has? Thrones are what? They're lifted up. They're highly exalted. Jesus says, if I be lifted up from the earth, will draw all men to myself. But he was saying this to indicate the kind of death which he was to die. The multitude therefore answered him, We have heard out of the law that the Christ is to remain forever. How can you say the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? Jesus therefore said to them, For a little while longer the light is among you. Walk while you have the light. The darkness, mean that, that, that darkness may not overtake you. He who walks in the darkness does not know where he goes. While you have the light, believe in the light. In order that you may become sons of light. These things Jesus spoke and he departed and hid himself from them. But though he had performed so many signs before them, yet... They were not believing in him. This is John writing. This is what he's attesting to. And he says in verse 38, And the word of Isaiah, the prophet, might be fulfilled. That the word of Isaiah, the prophet, might be fulfilled. Which he spoke. He believed Isaiah wrote this. He believed that Isaiah saw what he saw. And wrote what he saw. This is what he quotes. Lord, who has believed our report? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? It's from Isaiah 53, verse 39. For this cause they could not believe. For Isaiah said again, He has blinded their eyes. He is God. The He that He's speaking of here. He has blinded their eyes. He has hardened their heart. Lest they see with their eyes and perceive with their heart and be converted and I heal them. These things Isaiah said because he saw his glory and he spoke of him. He saw the glory of the Lord. He's attesting to it here. He's fulfilling. He's talking about the fulfillment of it. That it is truly him. 
Isaiah saw it because he saw his glory and he spoke of him. Nevertheless, many even of the rulers believed in him. But because of the Pharisees, they were not confessing him, lest they should be put out of the synagogue. For they loved the approval of men rather than the approval of God. God is awesome. He's amazing in that he chose to save some of us. He chose to save sinners. He didn't leave us all to what we deserved. He's awesome. And we see all those different pictures of these ideas of, of his awesomeness just in the very present. And in the presence of God, people are changed immediately. If you have a true encounter with the living God, you don't stay the same. He changes you. And that's what he came to do, to give us new life, to change us, to give us a rebirth, to make us new. That's what Jesus died on the cross for. That's why this awesome God did what he did. So that we could be set free. So that we could know this awesome God and worship him all the more. Enthusiastically. So that we can be enthralled like Isaiah was. and We can, we can in the imagination of our minds, just get an idea of that picture. Of this. Lord, Adonai, Yahweh, on His throne, above all thrones, above all dominions, above all authorities, above all powers, above all those things. He rules all. And even those great creatures cry out one to another. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. Holy is He. He's awesome. He's amazing. We're going to see more of this next week as we continue on in Isaiah chapter 6. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your goodness and your grace. We thank you for the awe that you inspire. We thank you for the great and glorious God that you are, the wonderful one, the one in whose presence changes everything. The mountains shake and quake. The earth trembles at your voice. Rivers dry up, oceans dry up. All these things take place because of your awesomeness. And I love the fact that we as yours, your sheep, those who follow, those who are yours, your elect, your chosen, that we can cry out, we have an awesome God. For he is awesome. You are awesome, O oh Lord. We thank you. And we thank you most of all that you are holy. Help us, Lord, to remember that you are holy. And never let us forget that we should treat you as holy. We thank you, Lord, for your goodness and your grace and your mercy. We thank you that in the midst of all these things, we can know you. And that you have purposed that we should know you. Rightly, properly in accordance with what you have prescribed through your Son, your glorious Son, our precious King and Savior, the one who sacrificed himself that we might have life. We thank you for all these things and more, Lord, and I pray that you would work in the hearts and minds of maybe those who have never trusted in you. That you would draw them as only you can. Their names would be found written in the Lamb's book of life, and they would come to life and they would rejoice. They would be blown away at your awesomeness and of your glory. Lord, we thank you. 
We praise you this morning. Have your way here amongst us. You are great and awesome and holy. Holy, holy. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' holy name. Amen. Amen.